Hello and welcome to Centre Stage, the Karakomarek Family Foundation podcast. Our guest today is looking to change the way that culture and the arts work in society. He's at the forefront of what some have termed the third industrial revolution, and I can't wait to discuss his plans for the future and the present as well. Welcome to the podcast, Jason Parks, CEO of Rotu Media, an immersive entertainment company. Hello and welcome, Jason. Thank you, James, for having me. Uh, it's great to, great to have you. Uh, you. I understand you're tuning in from Boston, is that right? Yes, absolutely. It's a warm, sunny day here. Great, great. Well, we mentioned that you're the CEO currently of Rotu Media, a company which looks at what you what you on your website call immersive entertainment. Uh, that obviously has a lot to do with virtual reality. Is that right? And how that incorporates our everyday life. Um, exactly. Uh, it was about four or five years ago when I tried VR for the first time. Uh, it was when the HTC Vive uh, originally was shipped. Uh, long story short, some of the uh, some of the colleagues we work with uh, had one of the headsets invited us over. I put on the headset. I saw a, a whale go by in a experience called the Blue, and I ripped off the headset and I said, "Oh, this is what we're doing with the rest of our lives." It's one of those steps in entertainment, one of those steps in technology where it is breathtaking and you realize that uh, this medium of any, it's not just education, but it's entertainment and and uh, and its uses are are limitless. And you recognize that almost instantly when you uh, when you have a chance to really experience high quality VR. And it must have in this past year, having with us being in a pandemic at all, virtual reality has really come to the fore. In what area do you think has it surprised you the most in terms of how quickly we've adopted virtual reality and kind of taken it for granted, really? Oh, that's a good question. I, you know, there, there's a lot of areas uh, where it's taken, you know, VR is taken by store. I mean, I think you would have to recognize the gaming industry um, as one of the, uh, one of the initial and heaviest, uh, heavily influenced areas uh, that VR has 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 pushed. I want to talk a bit about two areas that, to many people, myself perhaps included, might have a year ago thought that were mutually exclusive. But this year, especially after what has gone on with lockdowns, etc., have really kind of come together in ways that we never really thought were possible. And that that's virtual reality and culture. So. We've had online concerts, online music festivals. Um, in what ways do you think virtual reality has affected how we view culture and experience it as well? Uh, so first off, organizational culture uh, is something that my team at Road to Entertainment have uh, experienced firsthand. So especially during this pandemic, it's very difficult to see each other and Zoom is, it, it, it limits the amount of, interaction, the amount of communication that you can share. Uh, one, one incredible use case for VR is the fact that I can put on a headset and I can see someone I work with or a friend uh, of, um, right in front of you uh, embodied as an avatar of their choice, however they want to identify, however they want to be seen. And, and it's wow. so good to the point where you can even see the lips move to the words being coming out of the mouth in some, uh, in some experiences. Uh, and there are a, what feels like a limitless uh, um, amount of experiences that uh, that are multi-user and allow people to see each other. And there are even VR uh, apps that 
uh, allow, for example, something as simple as a whiteboard where you have a virtual marker and I can draw and make notes and a team of five can see those in real time and, and be able to draw and manipulate themselves. It's interesting you mentioned avatars as well, because I remember distinctly seeing uh, two years ago an advertisement for a Whitney Houston virtual concert. And obviously, Whitney Houston's been dead for several years now, but it was her hologram that was being projected onto an audience. And it was a regular stadium tour as well. So that really took me took me aback. Uh, do you think that these sorts of things are going to be happening more and more often? We might get, say, Michael Jackson hologram tours, Elvis Presley those sorts of things. Happen. Oh, uh, absolutely. And more, you know, going back to culture and, and, and that leads into ethics as well, right? Where, where do you draw the line in the ability to use IP in the likeness of, of those uh, artists who maybe are no longer with us that I believe that's a completely different story, but what's exciting about the possibility is that uh, we can even go f and have gone further than uh, restoring old uh, artists or being able to hear uh, something you know from from our past, but uh, pushing the boundaries of what the future is. For example, uh, uh, um, Warner Music just invested in Wave XR, and Wave is this platform that has brought, for example, the artist John Legend onto the stage and made him larger than life. Uh, you know, having a light show and an experience that you could never recreate in a physical place. Um, so I think we're going to be able to push the boundaries of what entertainment is and and what a virtual experience will be. Uh, and and I don't believe it's going to replace uh, uh, traditional traditional uh, venues or or even an orchestra because there is, you know, we've had, you know, there are twice as many people on the planet since, I believe, 1978. Uh, so, there is more than enough people needing to consume entertainment that there's room for all of it. Um, but yes, we're most certainly going to have and see more of um, artists uh, being brought back and having even existing artists uh, represented in ways we can't even imagine right now. I'm curious to find out how people, when you explain to them the different possibilities of what virtual reality has to offer in a cultural sense, we talk about holograms, we talk about recreating deceased artists. How do people normally react when you explain all this to them? Is it something, are they normally excited? And I know it's a, general, it's a generalization, I apologize for the nature mm -hmm. of the question, but uh, how do people normally react? Is it more positive or more skeptical? I believe it has to do entirely on if the individual has tried high quality VR before. Uh, normally the conversation is mixed if someone has not uh, um, seen uh, virtual reality from a tethered VR headset that's connected to a powerful computer where you're at 120 uh, hertz refresh rate, uh, that everything feels photorealistic, right? That when you look at your hands and you move your fingers, it, it's almost the same as if you were in real life. That level of VR is just astounding and uh, even standalone headsets like the Oculus Quest 2 are making huge strides very quickly to get to a place where that is at a uh, consumer level. So 
uh, I, again, I think it completely depends on the user or the, the person asking the questions experience with VR, um, because it, it, VR is one of those things where you need to try it to really fully understand, because one thing I find myself explaining to individuals who have not tried VR or, or, or are skeptical or even have tried VR, but maybe it was a mobile VR, right, with the Google Daydream or the, the Oculus Go, that in my opinion, that was unfortunately... Uh, a, a step back for VR's uh, um, adoption because three degrees of freedom, meaning I can look up, down, left, and right, but if I move forward, the whole world moves with me. That's what those early VR headsets were, and it just was, you need that presence, you need that interactivity, and that now exists in 99% of the headsets that are capable of being uh, consumed by users right now. So to get back to your question, I generally find myself explaining, one, that what VR is, is us dimensionalizing uh, the representation of a computer screen. And this goes sort of back to culture, is that we're quickly realizing that we can dimensionalize your desktop, that I, I can actually reach out and grab an object the same way I click and drag a file. Uh, hmm. That's generally how I start to uh, share that information. Number two, as I mentioned earlier, meeting in the same place, that we can be sit, you can sit in a real couch that in VR looks like a uh, looks like a couch. You can have a friend sitting right next to you. A great example of this is a VR app called uh, um, Big Screen, where you can sit in a movie theater next to your friend and watch uh, any number of movies that are available for for streaming at that time. Mm -hmm. And you can talk to each other. You even have fake popcorn that you can throw at each other. It's <laughs> uh, it, it's you know especially during a pandemic when when we're isolated. I, Honestly, I've had the most incredible experiences that feel as if I had traveled for the period of time in which I was in that experience. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third, and the third is that it's also a, an extreme learning tool. And and people, when they try VR, uh, whatever experience they have, it's almost like a vivid memory, and it really sticks. And and that has a lot of potential as well. So that's generally how I explain to people what VR is and, and, and try and get them, you know, more or less on my side about its uh, potential. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I'm very glad that you brought up the educational aspects and we'll get onto that a little bit later on. But first, I'd like to ask you a little bit about another thing you spoke about, uh, which was the fact that VR used to be, at least to my knowledge as well, when preparing for this interview, it used to be more of a therapeutic tool, sort of helping people with with brain conditions, and it's gone from being a very, it, at least that's the way I, I see it, and I think what you also kind of alluded to as well just then was that it's gone, we've, VR has gone from largely a research-based um, facility or, or, or concept to being more mainstream and more accepted. Would you agree with that kind of statement? Oh, absolutely. It's because the hardware has become affordable and of a quality that people can enjoy at home. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, yeah. And would, do you think it it will eventually penetrate all areas of our lives? You know, even even you mentioned homes, even the most private areas that that we have. You know, our homes are, are where we live. Uh, do you think that VR will also play a major role there as well, or will it be something that perhaps we're still a little bit skeptical towards letting into our perhaps most intimate circles? That is uh, it's to be seen. Um, uh, I, I don't want to make any predictions, uh, but in terms of where I personally feel it's going is uh, it's going to be similar to a, a television set. 
Uh, it's going to be a part of our homes. Uh, most uh, most households will have at least one headset, uh, and it'll be consumed uh, occasionally. Or for some households, it'll be consumed uh, at a level that's uh, um, too much, and we'll have to work on accessibility. We're going to have to work on um, educating the population as to healthy practices with VR. But ultimately, I do see it expanding, and I do see VR getting to a point where it the hardware itself is the size of a pair of let's say uh, ski goggles and that when you put it on you have you have a refresh rate that feels real you have experiences that are so high quality that uh, they feel photorealistic and ultimately it'll be this experience i guess let me let me call it a tool in our house that allows us everything from entertainment to education. And before you know it, you might be having dinner with Freddie Mercury. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And even crazier. I mean, there, there are apps that uh, 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 really, you know, take, take that concept and, and already uh, provide an opportunity to have a a taste of it. So, uh, um, you know, there are people with VR who, you know, avid VR users right now are experiencing that today. And I believe people, especially as the hardware develops and gets better and better, are going to understand that this is something that can be a part of their lives, but does not replace a, a date or a, a meeting, but is just a way to, uh, uh, you know, the same way that we, you can choose to text someone or you can choose to call someone in some situations, being able to see them face to face in VR is going to be desired. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And when we talk about, virtual concerts, virtual live events, for example. Is there a, do you feel there's a, a bit of a threat or, or, or just a, a genuine a concern that it might take away or detract from the experience of, say, going to a live concert? Or, or is that not the, that's not the aim of VR is to replace it, it's more to complement it? I think it's completely on how uh, a organization or let's say a entertainment sector uses VR. I mean, could it replace Absolutely right. If you if a organization pushed really hard to say, "Hey, no one ever go to a VR or never go to a live concert again. You only want to spend time in VR." Right. That that dystopia could exist. Right. But just as easily, and and as we're seeing, one great example is here in Boston. The Boston Ballet is using extremely high quality 360 video that you can see through VR headsets. They're using that to attract people back to the ballet in, in you know, where they would go and, and physically see the performances. So you go to the Boston Ballet website right now, you can even sign up and have an account with them, and you'll have access to these incredible VR experiences. But everything about those VR experiences, the videos and the communication around them is all about bringing the patrons back to the, to the physical uh, venue. And I think that's a beautiful thing, and I hope that that spreads and that understanding of VR will be the way we move forward with the fact that, hey, both entertainment, you know, forms exist simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And then complement each other as well. Absolutely. Uh, and and I also believe it's on the entertainment sectors. It's it's the entertainment sector's prerogative, for example, orchestras, to, to keep enticing and finding creative ways to make new generations appreciate and want to spend their money and time uh, going to a physical venue and seeing it. So it's not so much that VR would replace it, but if VR is this 
uh, um, tool where you can feel like you're somewhere and the experience you have is just breathtaking and mesmerizing and and you're there with friends that you normally couldn't uh, actually see because of geographical limitations uh, um, you know there you're very right there's a there's a chance that it could compete with each other but uh, I hope we you know we and I as I see it work out ways to have both exist mm-hmm. and one of the ways where I think VR can be very beneficial is especially when it comes to making, say, the arts or certain perhaps cultural artistic experiences that were previously viewed as very elitist, making them more accessible to a wider audience. Do you think that VR has a major role still to play in terms of educating the masses about the arts and cultural experiences in general? Um, Absolutely. It actually is the backbone of our upcoming VR game, Rhythm of the Universe Ionia. In our game, we have created what we call music mythology, where we've turned music theory. So that's everything from instrument names, note names, right? The 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 lingo and the uh, symbols and everything that encompasses music and music theory, and we turn that into lands, people, ecosystems, game mechanics, storyline arcs, everything. So in our game, we actually, uh, you know, you while you're playing through our game, you actually learn how to conduct a four-four pattern. You learn how to play <laughs> a, a, a major fifth on a keyboard. We teach you modes on a keyboard, uh, uh, along with actually having you live perform drums that are are these giant, uh, larger-than-life mushrooms, and ultimately using music theory and and music education to inspire and create empathy for, particularly in this game, wildlife conservation. So Mm -hmm. I absolutely feel that it is an incredible tool to educate and and to really, like like I mentioned earlier, VR has this very, very unique aspect to it where Let's say there's an experience uh, uh, where you can see the solar system, right? And and you're visualizing the solar system in, in a way where you're this, you know, the solar system is the size of a football from your viewpoint. And then with your interactive choosing can zoom in and be one-to-one scale, you know, next to one of the moons of, of Jupiter. Uh, so mm-hmm. This exists wow. already. And I now know uh, so much about not just our solar system, but our galaxy, uh, uh, as well as historical timepieces. You can watch uh, uh, Martin Luther King give his speech on stage uh, right in front of you. It, it's, 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 captivating, mesmerizing, and incredible what people have already done with VR. And it's clear where we can go with it. What I'm interested in, though, now is when you talk about uh, making artistic experiences and and through your video games, music more more accessible to people, do you sometimes worry that, because obviously arts and artistic pieces don't always have, uh, they they, they don't always unite. They, they, They can also polarize audiences. We talk about controversial plays, controversial experiences. Um, Do you worry sometimes that somebody might have an immersive experience and then perhaps it might have a negative effect on them later on? They might go and decide to do something wrong or or they might it might sort of have a have a negative influence on them later on. Does that affect you or or is that something that you think that virtual reality doesn't really have the capacity to inflict on someone? Uh, VR definitely has the capacity to inflict something negative on someone. Uh, I I don't want to sugarcoat that and I want to be very clear that I I actually am making it my life's mission to help take this entertainment medium and this vehicle to 
the right direction. Uh, um, it's very, I mean, for example, the majority of VR games right now are violent, extremely violent. And mm -hmm. it, there's one thing to play Call of Duty where you're shooting your friends basically with a controller. And uh, uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of studies and evidence that says that has nothing to do on uh, the, you know, uh, that doesn't have negative effects on a young mind yes, or, yes. or anyone. And there's plenty of uh, uh, evidence that it does. But I'm not here to, I, I you know, I have not in depth studied any of this information or any of these studies, but I do know that uh, having the option for equally compelling content that is nonviolent, that is empathy driving and is, uh, um, uh, is more or less the polar opposite and uh, allows you to learn and feel and, and, and regulate uh, in an appropriate way, that that needs to exist simultaneously where I don't believe it very much did in the rise of, of video games over the past 30 years. And I would love to make sure VR definitely does so that we aren't stuck to this fact that only violent games exist and that there are just a few educational apps, but the majority of consumption of VR is violent. I, I'm, I'm going to make it my life's mission to uh, uh, help make sure that there's an even playing field with what kind of content is available to consumers. We now have a generation that has grown up with smartphones, with apps, is there, and with virtual reality as well. Mm -hmm. Is there a difference, do you feel, between the way in which millennials and then older generations view VR and approach it as well? Um, yes. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, like VR is breathtaking to anyone. We actually stuck uh, Agatha, a 101-year-old. Uh, before the pandemic, we were actually looking for some unique uh, um, uh, uh, beta testers for our game. And we actually took VR to a retirement home and Agatha 101 was standing, standing up, playing our game, reaching out, grabbing things, playing music on the, on a marimba that we have in the VR game. And, and wow. she absolutely loved it. Her staff said she hadn't stood up for that long in weeks. I, I don't feel like it is a gridlock this generation and higher, you know, has any type of uh, um, issue toward VR. But I believe on an individual level, VR would feel very daunting and does feel very even scary to some people to put on a headset to be completely isolated from uh, the reality around you, uh, where only your hearing is, you know, is keeping you in touch with your reality. There are a lot of blocking factors that mm -hmm. allow mass adoption, especially from older generations. But I find that if you create environments where they can try VR in a safe way, you have someone who can help them put it on, that they understand you're there next to them, that at any time you can just pull the headset off, that you find that almost anyone, regardless of, of age, uh, we'll see the potential virtual reality can do for the arts in those generations as more and more headsets are in the homes and that grandchildren or parents are sharing that with their, you know, uh, with their parents and their grandfathers. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think, uh, uh, I think it's just a matter of time until mass adoption helps everyone just understand what VR is the very same way we all very easily understand what TV is. Mm -hmm. It's, I think it's really nice to hear your, your story about Agatha and how, how, she, how she reacted to VR as well. A 101-year-old lady just shows that you're never too old to learn new stuff and to experience new things. Uh, I remember watching a, a clip uh, two years ago, approximately, of, a, of a, a, an old people's home where, where there was a lady who was suffering from dementia and they, they gave her a virtual reality headset and they played some music and it was some classical music and she all of a sudden she lit up as well and, and it was almost like a different person it's do you think that 
virtual reality in terms of alleviating the effect of, for example, Alzheimer's disease, dementia, it, it has a definite role to play, even in the therapeutic sense, in terms of combining the arts, music therapy, and also just making people feel safe and making people feel like they belong. VR, as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, you know, one of its first first use cases was for um, uh, therapy and medical purposes. And we're, we're creatures that are storytellers. And storytelling is such a, an important aspect of, of not just our entertainment or, or our education, but also our healing and our therapy as well. And so as art uh, can influence the experiences you create in VR, uh, it's going to become more and more important that those uh, uh, that the arts make sure they have like a strong influence in therapy because there's a big difference between reaching out and grabbing a red ball in a white void room than there is to be on top of a mountain where it, it, it's you know, you're, you're looking over the horizon at sunset and you're grabbing a, a extremely beautiful uh, object that maybe has some resemblance from your childhood or, or an object that was created particularly for you. It mm. is just a night and day different experience and, and th art and therapy combined will have the capability of, of providing this. Um, and uh, yeah, the, like you mentioned, there's a lot of, there's a lot of evidence that it's already helping. Uh, uh, there are plenty of studies with uh, uh, fully paralyzed individuals going through therapy with virtual reality and coming out the other end, uh, only partially paralyzed and, and getting a lot of uh, uh, um, health back to their lives. And you sound, when you talk about the future of VR, you sound very optimistic, full of energy. I can, I can feel it, even though we, we can't see each other uh, physically, um, which is great. And I wanna ask you now, what, what do you think are, is the future like for virtual reality? Can we expect additional legislation to ensure that it doesn't do the things as we've discussed encroach on people's privacy, for example, or even copyright laws, etc. And if so, then then where is the area that you feel virtual reality needs to be perhaps controlled the most? Oh, uh, good. So first part of that question is, is where do I see VR going? Is a uh, It's going to be a device utilized in almost every household, and it's going to be widely utilized for training. Uh, in uh, corporate and uh, environments where you have to uh, uh, produce a mass amount of education amongst thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people, VR is going to be very useful to that. Um, I, I believe that all of this is going to be driven by the hardware itself. So we're going to need a much lighter headset where we offload the CPU and GPU that right now is all forced into basically a mobile chipset into this headset that's heavy and it's two or three pounds and it's sitting on the front of your face and it's it, it's not there yet but we're getting very quickly to uh having a device that's the you know the uh, more or less a pair of ski goggles uh, um so once we're there right we are going to most certainly have uh, a need for one uh the the the, the consumer the home consumer uh, version of VR needs to have regulations against the amount of privacy. Um, this is something that is already a huge discussion uh, for with Oculus Quest headsets, right? Uh, a lot of people, you, have, for example, with a Quest headset, you need to have a Facebook account. And generally, people are concerned about the amount of data that they are providing. I mean, even to the point where uh, headsets can track where you look uh, 
uh, on, you know, in VR, you can get data as to what you look at the most. You can get data on your facial expressions, uh, you know, in future headsets, we'll be able to put in more hardware that captures even more data. So it is going to be very important that the same way we, we have regulations on our Facebook accounts and uh, are able to go in and opt in and out of, of what we're willing to share with the company, that all needs to uh, uh, happen in the VR space, which it already is. You can go to uh, uh, certain thought leaders on this. For example, Kent Bai. Uh, you can find him, I believe, at, at Kent Bai on Twitter, and you'll you'll see a lot of his white papers and his podcasts and his interviews um, f having a huge focus on this exact subject. So if anybody's interested in learning more about this, I would highly recommend uh, looking up Kent Bai. And in light of what we've just discussed, where do you see the future for the for the arts and for for culture in light of the ascension of virtual reality? You know, to answer that question, I would have to separate VR from that equation, and I would would like to just point out that uh, that live performances, the way we used to have them, and the way we will have them in the future. Uh, um, have to have levels of, I, I shouldn't say have, but we should most certainly um, put effort toward uh, uh, creating environments and payment structures to where artists can live a comfortable life providing live entertainment because uh, VR does not replace a live concert. Um, it most certainly just is a new form of entertainment as we talked earlier. So uh, in terms of protecting the arts, I believe it, it all comes down to education, right? In the school systems, we should most certainly support the arts. We should support music programs. We should support the, uh, the, the, the art, uh, the, the facilitation of, of art for every single student. And that when an artist or uh, let's say a student feels compelled to be more of an artist and, and to want to pursue that, to have avenues to where that can be monetized uh, um, even more efficiently so that just we're not losing all of these artists to, uh, uh, to the fact that they can't make a living, but create environments where they can. I think that is completely separate from VR because you could, VR right now could not exist and we would still have trouble, right? The arts are in trouble and we most certainly need to create um, ways to, uh, uh, to monetize it. And I think VR is going to be able to do that one through the education. So early education, you're going to be able to learn very quickly. You're, you can have Mozart standing next to you showing you how to play the violin uh, or, or how to, you know, I mean, at, at a high level, this is absolutely mm -hmm. possible and in many ways already exists. Um, and, and, and two, VR is going to give an outlet for some of these artists to join for example, a company like Rotu and, and come in and do everything from concept art to composition to orchestration uh, to actually learning some of these programs that uh, implement the, the, the process of, of taking a 2D piece of art and getting it and turning it into a, a video game, right? These, these, these jobs require artists. And so uh, I believe VR is only going to help support and, and make the, uh, the arts thrive. And then, in, and then again, it's going to be up to the organizations that are pursuing traditional uh, arts, like an orchestra, to find ways to incentivize people and, and bring in future generations. Well, well, we have lots to look forward to in that case. Uh, Jason Parks, thank you so much, CEO of Rotu Media and uh, also co-creator of Rhythm of the Universe, Ionia. So thank you so much for joining us on, on this podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure and all the best of luck with all of your future projects and with uh, Ionia as well. Thank you, James. It's been a pleasure to speak with you.
The Garel Komalek Family Foundation podcast discusses everything to do with the Foundation's work, the arts, and culture in general. For more information on what the Foundation does, visit its website at gomalekfoundation.org.